0: Welcome to the Horses Ask the Horse Live. I'm Michelle Anderson, digital managing editor of thehorse.com. Tonight's topic is caring for your new horse. Nothing is more exciting than getting a new horse. And if it's your first horse or your first horse in a while, then congratulations and welcome to the horse world or welcome back to the horse world. As those of us who've had horses for a long time know, horses aren't just a hobby, but they're a lifestyle, and we wouldn't trade that for anything else. And we at The Horse are excited to share that lifestyle with you. We also have a special offer for our new horse owners tonight that we'd like to um, extend. We would like to give you... uh, a free two-month trial of our magazine, The Horse, Your Guide to Equine Healthcare. You can go to thehorse.com and click on the banner, and that banner ad will take you to that uh, offer. So let's go ahead and get started. Uh, We're joined tonight by two of my favorite people to work with, they're great sources here at The Horse, and we rely on them a lot. We have Dr. Erin Denny-Jones, who's an FEI veterinarian and owner of Florida Equine Veterinary Services in Claremont and Dr. Claire Toonies, a nutritionist who operates Summit Equine Nutrition near Sacramento, California, and serves as a regional supervisor for the Sierra Pacific region of the United States Pony Club. Welcome to both of you. Glad to be here. Let's start with you, Dr. Jones. Can you tell our audience a little bit about your practice, the work that you do, and your experience in the horse industry?
1: I'd be happy to. I have a 21-year-old practice, I've been out of school a little more than that, and it is an ambulatory with a small clinic facility. It primarily takes care of performance horse, and I have herd health, so I have your um, average new owners uh, on a daily basis or a weekly basis, and the practice experience comes from the reproduction days all the way up to the sports medicine days now. Uh, As an FBI veterinarian, I see probably more sport horses than I do anything else, and I am excited when I see new horse owners getting into it because I think that this love I've had all my life needs to extend out to every person in the world. So I get excited with new owners because they come with a lot of enjoyment and a lot of great questions, and they have so much more to learn and so much more. Um, experiences to experience that uh, I get
0: to see through the, their eyes. Yeah, that's, that's one of my favorite parts of the industry is getting to connect with those new people in the industry um, as well, Dr. Jones. Um, uh, Dr. Toonies, can you tell us a little bit about your experience and your work as a nutritionist and also your role within Pony Club?
2: Absolutely, yeah, I'd love to. Um, so I'm actually English. I grew up uh, keeping horses in England and they've been in my family a long time and um, did Funny Club as a child, did all kinds of different disciplines, everything from you know, pole bending to trail riding to dressage to show jumping. I've kind of done a little bit of everything. And then I actually came to America um, for graduate school and I've been here ever since. And um, did some work as an assistant trainer with an FEI dressage rider while I was in graduate school. And my goal has always been, since I was actually in my teens, to go out and practice as an independent equine nutritionist, and kind of help everyday people feed their horses and know how to feed their horses. And so that's predominantly what I do now as an independent equine nutritionist. Is I help uh, horse owners figure out the best way to feed their horses, and I have a lot of, you know, first-time horse owners uh, that I work with, and um, it's great because they're really open to wanting to do everything right and um, you know they're, sort of not, they're not set in their ways yet so they're, they're very fun to work with um, and have a lot of really good questions and they're often also slightly bombarded by you know, all the information that's out there. It's very hard to kind of cut through all the marketing and kind of figure out um, what they really should be feeding their horse. It's often a little overwhelming and they really want to do the right thing by their horse. Um, and then I also teach at UC Davis and the junior college, and I, I love, you know, teaching and sharing my knowledge with people um, and giving talks and stuff and seminars. And as you mentioned, I'm also the regional supervisor for our local region, Sierra Pacific region um, of the United States Pony Club. And Pony Club's um, a fabulous organization, which um, now is open to adults. And so it's really open to, um, you know, Children of all ages, up to you know 90, <laughs> the younger heart as well, and and all disciplines. We take you know riders who ride western now as well. So there's really something for everyone. And the big thing about Pony Club is it really has its foundation in horse management, and it's got a fabulous curriculum, you know, that covers everything from literally how do you put a halter on a horse, how do you lead it safely into a stall. You know what's a veterinarian? Why would you have a shoeer? All the way up to at its most advanced levels, understanding the in-depth workings of the various systems of the horse. Um, you know, being able to design a barn, knowing you know how to safely lunge your horse. I mean, it's really a very thorough program. Um, it's not just riding; it really focuses on horse management. So it's something I encourage you know, all horse owners to consider if they really want to further their knowledge in a very safety-conscious um, you know, way with an organization that's been around for decades, <laughs> um, and is around all over the world too. So many of our, you know, we, we can, you can compete all over the world with Pony Club, and you meet friends all over the world. And I created a whole new community in Northern California because I'd been in uh, Pony Club as a child. It opened up many many doors to me as I as I set up a new life in, in a new country. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I I am excited about tonight because I think that between Dr Jones and your uh, veterinary experience, and as a horse owner, and Dr. Tooney's with your experience as a nutritionist, and and your involvement in Pony Club, we should be able to answer a lot of questions from our audience. So if you're listening live, feel free to send in your questions. Uh, Nothing's too basic tonight. Um, And if you have some more advanced questions, we're open to answering those as well. I want to give a quick review of our Ask the Horse live format. We're going to be starting out with the questions that were submitted ahead of time during registration. But if you have a question you'd like to ask live, you can just enter it in your console in front of you and and we'll try to get to those if you would like to follow up on something that we've answered, go ahead and feel free to ask those questions as well. Um, and we'll do the best to get to as many of your questions tonight as possible. So let's go ahead and get started. And I'm going to start with Dr. Toonies. We have Shannon in Marilyn, and she wanted us to talk about the must-haves prior to buying a horse and how long you need to give yourself in buying that first horse. So Dr. Toonies, what are your recommendations for the basic things that we need for a horse and- And how long we should give ourselves to get ready to own that
2: first horse? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I I think the biggest thing is, you you know, you obviously have to have a safe place to keep that horse that has adequate shelter and fencing and water and the like. And that's going to look like different things to different people. So um, if you're going to be putting your horse in a boarding facility, um, you know, you might be looking at, you know, Searching for a suitable facility and securing a spot, and that might not take you very long. You might be able to, you know, do that in a month. Um, if you are looking at um, purchasing a piece of property that's not yet fenced and doesn't have any form of shelter um, or, you know, water supply to that part, um, you could be looking at many months. You might be looking at a year in order to kind of put that together. So, um, I think the first thing is you kind of have to decide, you know. What is horse keeping going to look like for you, and how are you going to keep that horse safe? It may be perhaps you put your horse in a boarding facility in the short term, with a long term goal of having your own property, and that you're working on that fencing and what have you, while you've got your horse in a boarding situation. Um, other things I think you really need to have lined up ahead of time are, you know, a veterinarian, um, a farrier or a hoof trimmer that's going to look after your horse's hooves for you. Um, that's not something you want to sort of have the horse and suddenly realize that, oh gosh, you know, I need to have him reshot in four weeks and I have no clue uh, who my local farrier is or even if they have an opening on their books to take you. So those are things you really need to figure out ahead of time. Um, you know, if you're new to owning horses, having a good professional who you can go to for help, um, whether that's, you know, under saddle riding or, you know, just day to day care, you need somebody that you can go to who you know is. You know, invested in you and can help you make good decisions. And so, you know, interviewing people and making sure that they have a philosophy that kind of fits your personality and your goals. And again, that might take a little while to, you know, it might take a few months to go and observe lessons or maybe take lessons with that person or find somebody who, um, you know, would be a good fit for you. Um, and I tell you, you know, when I when I moved to California and first got my first lease horse here. Um, it was very difficult, actually, getting into the industry because I didn't know anybody. I didn't know who the local shoe was. I didn't know who the local vet was, and it was, you know, it took a long time, you know, figuring out word of mouth who my horse connections were. Um, and so, one thing I, you know, think it would be worth doing is looking at local equestrian clubs and associations. Perhaps there's a dressage society, if you like dressage, or maybe there's a trail riding association, or or a 4-H, or a pony club, or some sort of equestrian community club that perhaps you could go and join Um, before you even own a horse, um, that you can kind of get those connections, those word of mouth, you know, okay, who do you use for your shoe or who's your vet, what do you like about them, and to kind of really help you get those connections. Because I find when when I I first started here in Northern California, it was quite difficult um, sort of coming into it as an outsider. And
0: Dr. Jones, do you have or have you had new horse owners come to you before they purchase their horse and develop a relationship? Before they get involved in the industry. That would be fabulous. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, I'm I really would like. love that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's great. Right. Claire, I mean, Claire took the words out of my mouth, and and so your listeners know, Claire and I have never met until this evening, and so this is definitely not pre-planned. But I would have my first words would be is join the pari club, even without a horse, and there's ways you can do that by volunteering. See, these items that she was yeah. talking about has become part of the dressage club, or the jumper club, or the eventing club, or the western riding club. You can volunteer at their shows because they're always desperately seeking volunteers and get to know that industry because each one is a different bird, a different way of going of uh, going about their farrier, going about their vest, going about their way of life, their saddles, everything is different in each one. And You might find that you thought you loved, let say, dressage, but that just wasn't it for you, and you western, or vice versa. So really volunteering, and I've had numerous excellent clients, and not all of my excellent clients have been this way, um, and they have gone and worked as a stall cleaner at a barn, and got to know what it was like to own a horse before they even purchased their first horse. There is also rescue and rehab facilities that are constantly looking for people to walk a horse or feed the horses or something so you can get around the horses and get to understand behaviors and stuff of horses, which I think is very, very important. And then, of course, all the basic needs that Claire had just said is, as Primo, if you're going to have them in your own place, how are you going to house them in there? How are you going to shelter them if you need to shelter them? How are you going to supply the food and the water? there are different ways of doing that in different parts of the country depending on the weather and how you build that up fencing there is all sorts of fencing for all different size, types of livestock and animals that one size does not fit all and you really need to research those before you just slap up a fence and say this is how life's going to be for my animal um, so again like volunteering I can't say that enough volunteering is a part of my must half and it gives you a really good idea of what you're going to yourself into <laughs>
0: And um, from my experience, because I was a therapeutic riding instructor for um, years, and that was a great place for people to volunteer with a lot of support uh, from horse people and learn how to be around the horses and do some of those basic things like catching the horses and leading the horses and just being around them. Um, So I think that is a great way to get started and Claire mentioned leasing a horse and I definitely think that leasing is a great entry point rather than going out and buying a horse right away. Leasing one, kind of getting used to a trainer and a stable situation and um, it's just, it's a nice way to kind of ease yourself into, into the horse world. So um, I'm going to jump to the next question. This is for Claire and it's from Diane in California and This question actually kind of made me laugh, Dr. Toonies. Uh, She's asking, what about when I take two weeks vacation? Is it typical for other horse owners at the stable to cover feeding and turnout, et cetera? And I had to laugh because I was just out of town last week, and it's so much work to get away from home with the horses. Um, So, Dr. Toonies, what conditions do you have?
2: No, it absolutely is, and you know the horse I had all through high school, which then my mother um, had for years. When he finally was put down, um, everyone said, "Are you going to replace your horse?" And she said, "No, actually, I'm looking forward to being able to go on vacation <laughs> without having to worry about that." So it is, you know, that's a big, you know, it's a big responsibility having a horse, and um, you know, it's not as simple sometimes as perhaps a dog or a cat that perhaps you can put into a kennel situation or a cattery. Um, so you do have to have good help lined up, and you know a lot of my clients are in you know, boarding situations where you know everyone gets on really well, and it's, it's not difficult to ask a friend to you know feed. But um, you know that's not always the case, and I think it also depends what your expectation is. I mean, if you're in a boarding situation and all you're asking them someone to do is to Maybe feed your, you know, pre-put together baggies of feed and supplement. That's not perhaps a big ask of somebody, but um, you know, if if you're also asking them to turn the horse out or do other things, um, you know, that's a bigger ask. And at that point, you may actually be looking to um, have to pay somebody to to do that kind of thing for you. And quite often there are. Um, you know, high school kids around the barn that are wanting to make a little extra money who might be willing to do that kind of thing. But, you mean, you also, it's a big responsibility, and you want to make sure it's somebody who is going to pay as much attention to your horse as you would and notice if something isn't quite right. You know, they need to be picking their feet out every day. They need to be checking their legs every day. They need to be, you know, sort of checking their overall well-being and and know what to do if something goes wrong. And... um, you know, one thing about the feeding thing is, if you're going to be gone for two weeks and this horse isn't going to be worked and it's been in routine work, and you're feeding, you know, more than just hay, you may need to actually be looking at altering that ration um, and cutting it back so that you're not that horse isn't being overfed um, while you're gone. So um, that's something to consider as well. And then the other thing that I that I want to point out to people who are thinking about going on vacation, and perhaps Erin can has something to add here, but I think you need to tell your veterinarian you're going on, on vacation. Right? If something happens yeah. with your horse, let say your horse colics, does your veterinarian have your, what does your veterinarian have permission to do with your horse? Is your horse insured? Who has the insurance information on that horse because insurance companies like to know right away as soon as something goes wrong. If that horse gets lame, they want to be called right away. If you wait too long, they may come back and say, oh, I'm sorry, you know, we didn't know. We're not going to pay out on this treatment. Um, and so, Sarah I don't know if you have anything particular there
1: you'd like to add. I would love to add to that as well as two other items that um, when I saw this question come up, it came to light. In fact, there were two instances that occurred today to me. But um, adding to your comment about letting the veterinarian know, I do have some clients. They actually have a credit card on file for emergencies only. Right. They have something else they use. But they put it on file. We lock it in a safe lock. It's not accessed by anybody but my receptionist, so there's no fraudulent thing of the, the credit card there's A lot of veterinarians that do that, and it's only to be used when they have an emergency. Or they'll call it in and say, look, I'm going on vacation. If I have an emergency, please use this credit card to take care of whatever is necessary. It's fantastic to know because we'll get the strange person calling in about so-and-so's uh, horse that's hurt, and we're like, who are you do you have permission to give us you know, right to go out there and treat that animal? Because then the client might say, oh, I didn't give you them permission to call you, and so now they need to pay the bill, and we're stuck in the middle, and nobody pays." be paid. So, you know, a lot of veterinarians may be hesitant to go out if it's not the proper person calling because they need to have permission. The other so, thing um, – go ahead.
0: Oh, I was going to say, Dr. Jones, so I always leave a note that says uh, I'm out of town. This person, who's usually my – Farm sitter has permission to seek uh, veterinary care for my horses in this amount of money per horse. Yes. Yeah. Um, is that and then I sign it. Uh, is that something that that will work in in my absence? I've never knock on wood. I've never actually had to <laughs> be tested, but I always leave that behind, and it just kind of makes me feel a little bit better. But is that a legitimate way to communicate that your horse can receive some care when you're when you're gone?
1: Yeah. Yeah, so there's something to think about it because I think Claire put it well. You can go to a, a dog place and drop a dog off and you know, board them and the cat as well. But for the horses, they're a big responsibility. So it's a bigger responsibility to have somebody in charge and you need to have that person with a signed off sheet that says it's okay to do. Uh, we actually have on our um, welcome packet that we have new owners fill out. And it seems a little daunting. It's like going to the doctors anymore. You fill out your name and your address. You put down your pet's names and their age and all that. At the very bottom, we say, who at this barn, because usually it's boarding barns, but who at this barn or who in your family is allowed to call for veterinary care? And they usually put the person's name and sign to it there at the bottom. It kind of saves us on a lot of different problems because you might be at work in the middle of a conference call or a meeting and can't get away and your is colicking and the barn owner's calling trying to get your permission for us to come out. But if you've already signed over for that barn owner to call us right away because you don't want to waste any time, it makes it so much easier on us. My two my two experiences today just to go along the same line is I have a client who has a horse. They've had the horse for 17 years and it's now in his 20s. And the child has done everything on it. The child is now also in her 20s. She's getting married, and um, she has you know one ribbons on this horse and all that. Unfortunately, the wife now takes care of the uh, the mom takes care of the horses and the kids have flown the coop. Dad has cancer. Dad is going for six weeks of radiation therapy for. Um, hours away, and mom's going to go with them. She's struggling to try to find somebody to cover care while she's gone for six weeks. You have to consider that things like this happen in your life, and I don't ever wish uh, bad things on any people, but you might take a vacation for two weeks or a week, but there might be something that's unexpected that happens in your family, and you're going to be vacant. You need to find and create those relationships early on, as Claire said, get into clubs and groups that you're going to trust somebody to help you out during those down times you have with your family. The other one is a colic that I went and saw earlier today that is not doing any better. This lady has moved it to a boarding facility um, but has no trailer. If you do not have transport for your animal and you bought the animal at the farm it's going to stay at and you're there running, you need to, again, make some friends or some contacts where you know in an emergency situation you're not scrambling to find a truck and a trailer to get this horse to a hospital to get better care. Mm-hmm.
0: And that's definitely kind of a pay it forward situation in the horse yeah. industry. I know that when when I was newly out of college and new, newly in, in a job and had my first horse on my own away from my parents, uh, that I had a lot of great people help me out with, with a horse trailer and hauling them. And, and now I am happy to do that for friends and other people who need that because, um, you know, it, it takes a lot of resources to move these horses around and take care of them. And it's kind of, it takes a village with these horses, um, for sure. One
2: One of the things that, um, one of the things actually just talking about record keeping and things, one of the things that we all honey clubbers do, which I think is a fabulous exercise is they actually have to keep a record book and it starts off by being just three months, but ultimately it ends up being 12 months. Um, and it ends up being a document that if you handed it to somebody, they would know exactly how to keep you know, care of your horse, like down to like you know, where in the tack room is the bridle hanging, which bridle is yours, which hook is it on, what do they get fed, what are they getting for exercise, what's their temperature, what's their pulse, what's their respiration. I mean, it's an amazing exercise that they have to go through to learn, A, you know, if anything ever happened, here's a document anyone could take and now know how to look after your horse. Um, and so it's it's really worth keeping good records and and having that kind of a thing that that as Erin said I mean especially in the case of like a family emergency where you get called away unexpectedly you can say here here's the document is everything you need to know
0: mm-hmm. yeah yeah and. We have some questions coming in from our live audience. This one's for you, Dr. Jones. Patty is in South Florida, and she wants to know the pros and cons between pasture board or stall boarding a horse. What are your thoughts on that? If Given the option, do the horses, should they be inside or should they be outside?
1: Everybody has an opinion on that. It depends on the use of your horse. So, So we're all chuckling because there are some of us who show, and they don't want a scratch on their horse because that would ding them in the show ring and they would not win a prize or or whatever. They don't want them out trotting around and step wrong and hurt themselves and then now they can't go to the show that they paid big money to go to this weekend or whatever. So there's lots of different opinions on that. In general, if we think about horses, we have taken this range moving animal who moved from one particular range to the next, the next seeking food and shelter depending on the time of year, and have confined them down to a smaller area. Smaller area could be 20 acres, and it could be a one acre paddock, uh, a fat, or maybe even a small paddock outside of a stall, a 12 by 12 stall. So these horses are used to moving. Moving helps the digestive tract move. So movement helps the tract. Whenever people have heard about colic situations, you're like, oh, take them for a walk, take them for a walk. The reason you walk them is not to keep them from getting down and rolling. It does help the digestive tract move and maybe kicks it back into gear. So walking a horse uh, helps the digestion. So this animal does out moving around, but you can get the uh, flip side of it, of somebody who has spent quite a bit of money on their horse and they say, I do move them because I ride them X amount of days a week, X amount of times a week or hand walked or whatever. So, in their mind, that is enough movement. So, it's really depending on what you use the animal for. I'm a big believer in making them as much natural um, environment as they can so turn out as fine. But some of my show people would really cringe hearing that.
0: And I have a horse that used to have a beautiful show coat because he was kept in a barn and, um, and managed that way. Uh, but he had uh, heave issues, so, a respiratory distress from being in a stall. Uh, and so he's done much better outside, and his coat has never looked as good as it used to look, but he, um, he can breathe, which is huge. Um, is that something that, that you run into with your, your clients, Dr. Jones?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. The whole issue of what's best for them uh, physically is another discussion. So you have those that are outside all the time, And it's a rainy environment, and they get rain rot, which is a bacterial infection of the skin on the top line where they stay moist and wet all the time. You get the heaves for horses that are inside. It's called recurrent airway obstruction, R-A-O, up north. Here in Florida, we get the summer pasture AOD, airway obstructive disease. So we get S-P-A-O-D down here. So you take a horse from inside and put it outside and they actually get worse and they get a little more asthmatic looking or heavey looking as we call it in the horse industry. So that there's that. Uh, you have an area that's heavy with water. If you're in a swampy area of Florida or Louisiana and you turn your horse out all the time and their feet fall apart and the farrier is just pulling out their hair trying to keep this horse's feet on them. So there's many medical issues, reasons why to put them in a the house and many medical reasons why to turn them out, too. So that's another discussion you have with your veterinarian. Mm-hmm.
0: I think you brought up a good point there that horse management can be really regional. Um, I'm in Oregon, in the high desert of Oregon, and how we keep horses is very different than how, say, my coworkers who are in Lexington, Kentucky, keep their horses. And so there are some different challenges and benefits to every part of the country Claire you're you're down in Northern California you're kind of similar to mm-hmm. me do you guys keep your horses mostly in or out because you have um issues with having enough land for horses to be turned out don't right. you I mean, land prices
2: are so expensive that yeah. um it's really a luxury to have the ability to turn them out on any you know considerable acreage so most of our horses are in a in a barn situation, and, and even if they are turned out, it's very unusual. Is that it's you know any kind of real pasture? It we get spring pasture in the foothills, um, and a little bit of fall pasture too, depending on the, you know the, the rain situation. But um, it's unusual to have really good quality grazing.
0: So we have a question from our live audience along those lines, uh, Dr. Toonies. It's from Cheryl, and Cheryl said she just purchased 70 acres, and I'm jealous, Cheryl, (laughs) because I have
1: two and a
0: quarter acres. I wish I had 70 acres. Um, My horses wish they had 70 acres of pasture irrigated and didn't stand in the desert dry lot. Um, But she wants to know what kind of grass she should plant for her gypsy vanner horses. Uh, Dr. Toonies, where can she find information about that?
2: Yeah, that's a great question and there's really not um, you know most of the grass um, sort of species of grass and uh, the mixes that are put together for seeding pastures are put together mostly for like the beef industry so you've got you know rye and and um, some of the blue grasses and the like um, some mixes have legumes in some have some clover in there as well um, and then there may be regional mixes but I'm not aware of, I mean, there's been a little bit of a move in recent years to try and come up with mixes more specifically for horses, you know, with the concerns about uh, pastures being quite rich for some horses at certain times of year. But um, there was a very interesting talk at Equine Science Symposium, you know, a number of years ago about how difficult, you know, how long it takes to actually generate, you know, different strains of grasses and things. So to my knowledge right now, most of the mixes out there are aimed more at uh, beef cattle production and other livestock. And it's going to come down a lot to the climate that you're in. And so I would really advise that she finds her local extension office and um, seek out her extension agent. And she may or may not have an equine extension agent, but if they don't have an equine extension agent, uh, happily there might be a beef extension agent who has pasture experience um, that she could potentially work with to somebody would come out, look at her facility, and kind of figure out what species of grass would make the most sense. I mean, some things to think about are, you know, if you do put clover in a, in a pasture, um, you have a little higher nitrogen, a little higher protein in the end grass, and that's a, they, they fix nitrogen out of the atmosphere, so you potentially have to worry a little bit less about fertilizing the pasture because it sort of almost self-fertilizes. But I've also got clients who, when they put clover in their mix, the clover ended up taking over the entire pasture and kind of choked out some of the grass species. And the other issue when you have clover in is that if you do have issues with weeds, um, you can't use any kind of broadleaf herbicide um, because you'd kill off the clover, which may or may not be a good thing depending on how much clover you have at that point. So just some things to think about that that your extension agent should be able to help you with.
1: And my two cents on that with the extension agent is their salary is usually by your taxes so they're usually a free source of information and that's a rarity to find in horse world is free sources so they're a great source and a free source
0: so i have to laugh dr tunis because i was at the the feed and seed store earlier today picking up some stuff for my horses and i walked through the pasture seed aisle and they had a pamphlet for pasture grasses, and it had a picture of a cow, and a llama, and a sheep, and a goat, and a horse. No, <laughs> any horses? <laughs> there was a horse. So he was towards the oh. bottom, but but the uh, the cattle were definitely at the top. So, um, yeah. but Dr. Jones, is there any concern about types of grass? I know that that um, that fescue can be a concern because of the endophytes, and and that's kind of a a big topic. But should horse owners be wary of any any specific grasses for their, their horses to graze on?
1: Well, really, again, that's a regional thing. The clover, they can get the excessive slobbering and salivation. Um, the fescue can cause the mares uh, to not produce milk in the last trimester of their breeding, uh, their um, pregnancy. It um, <clears throat> has claimed, but it's never been 100% proven, the coastal grasses, Um, but it's really the coastal hay causes colic in horses. Um, The nutritional value is what I really focus in on and I ask the extension people to uh, have that discussion with clients is which one of those pasture grasses are going to give nutritional value to the horse. If it's just like eating iceberg lettuce for you and I, we're just filling ourselves up with something that has zero or very little nutritional value and it's kind of a waste to seed and fertilize something that has very little nutritional value as your horse is sitting out there staying thin, and you're going to have to supplement with a good quality hay or grain. So just make sure your pasture is something that's proper for the horse, doesn't cause any side effects, as well as will keep the weight on them.
0: Uh, Dr. Jones, we have a question from our live audience about colic. Wendy wants to know about sand colic specifically. She said that she's heard that neither psyllium um, or bran works to help prevent sand colic. She wants to know, Are either one of them effective, and
1: what can she do to help prevent sand (laughs) colic? That's a loaded question. That's a great question. Um, There have been many discussions lately where people are saying psyllium does not work. In certain circumstances, now when psyllium was researched, it was researched about the time I was getting out of school, and they were bringing in horses that they could X-ray their abdomen, which is very difficult to do, so they were coming into hospitals, x-raying the abdomen of the horse to see the level of the sand in the intestines. They had that much sand, you could see it and then of course they put them on the product or didn't put them on the product depending on which group they were in and of course the, the investigator did not know which and they come back in and they take another x-ray. If your horse is that full of sand, I would agree psyllium alone is not going to remove all that sand it's very difficult and if that sand gets more there will be an obstruction that will probably require surgery and then they'll have to pull all that sand out surgically but as a pre- preventative it's a psyllium is a good thing to I think put your horse on to try to prevent but you still have to do management don't feed them on the sand Don't put a circular bucket with grain that they're going to flip the bucket over and then start picking all the grains out of the sand because they're pulling sand up at the same time. Don't throw your hay right down into the dirt sand area of your pasture. Go to the greener area and I'll tell you, right along the fence line, they're running the fence line waiting to come into the stall, it's a great place to throw the hay right over to because you don't have to walk in and it's really quick. Walk in, go to the grass area, drop it there or find a trough that you can create that uh, doesn't fill up with water of course that you can put the hay into that gets it off the sand. So there's many management things you need to do first before relying on psyllium, bran, mineral oil, that kind of thing. Those are ancillary to your management and I can't express and push that management is the number one thing to curtail your sand ingestion.
0: Dr. Tunings, we have a question from our live audience for you, and it's from Ruta. And Ruta wants to know what she should feed her horse in relation to the horse's exercise. So, basically, what what should we feed our horses, and then how does exercise play a role in the amount or type of feeds that we use?
2: That's a great question. So, I'll, I'll explain kind of how I approach this. So, as you know, we've talked about earlier. I mean, horses, you know, evolved on the plains, eating mostly fibrous forage and so we really want a source of forage to be the foundation of all our horses diets, regardless of how hard they're working so whether that's pasture or hay or you know what you choose as your forage source that really needs to be the foundation and you know my goal is to try and feed that horse as much hay or uh, or pasture depending on the horse as possible if I can maintain that horse in good condition um, and by good condition, I you know, I have in my head the Henneke Body Condition Scoring Scale, which is on a one to nine scale, with one being emaciated and nine being obese. And most of our pleasure horses, we want around you know, about a five. Um, so right in the middle of that scale, which is you can't see ribs, but when you feel them, they're right there. Uh, the neck blends smoothly into the shoulder. The back is flat. You don't have a valley going down the spine. You don't have a mountain range on the spine, that kind of thing. Um, The body is just sort of smooth and blends into itself with no real obvious fat deposit. Um, If you can maintain a horse in that kind of condition just with forage, perfect. Then you're not looking for extra calories. What you're looking for at that point are the things that are not in your forage. So some trace minerals, if you're feeding hay, some vitamin E. So you're looking for something that's going to provide your missing trace minerals and your vitamins. Um, and the easiest way to do that is to look for what we call a ration balancing feed in the industry. We refer them to them as ration balancing feeds. They're often high in protein, about 30% protein, um, and very heavily fortified. And when you read the feeding instructions, they have a very small daily serving size of maybe one to two pounds. And um, they're very heavily fortified because they have this small serving size and their, their point of these feeds is to basically just provide your horse the things that are missing in the forage so quality protein trace minerals and vitamins if however you're struggling to keep weight on your horse uh, for the type of work you're doing from just forage alone and you've tried increasing the forage or you've tried different types of more sort of energy dense forage remember alfalfa so a little bit more calories per pound than grass hay and we tried adding maybe 25% of the ration is alfalfa and, you know, you've still got weight loss issues. Well, at that point, now we need a feed that's going to not only give you the trace minerals and vitamins that aren't in your hay, but it's also going to be a source of calories. And, you know, there are many ways of going about that. Um, You know, the traditional way of going about that was to rely on feeds that were somewhat heavy in starch, so kind of your oat, barley, corn type feeds. More recently, we've moved away from feeding so many of those sorts of feeds in favor of fermentable fibers, such as beet pulp, soybean hulls, almond hulls that are uh, actually fermented in the hindgut, the way forage is, but that's more easily achieved with these feeds than hay, and they yield more calories per pound than hay, and feeds that also have um, some fat in them, so some higher fat fiber feeds. Um, So which one you pick is going to come down to the type of exercise you do with your horse. You know, If you're doing speed activities where your horse is working anaerobically, like cutting horses, high-level Grand Prix show jumpers, you know, race horses and the like, you're going to need a little bit of starch in that ration because they need starch when they're working anaerobically. If you're doing slower moving disciplines where the horse is working mostly aerobically, you know, trail riding, um, endurance, dressage um, type activities, then you know, the higher fat fiber type feeds are probably more the way you're going to go. The key is, is that you need to feed those feeds the way they're designed to be fed. So you need to feed them per the feeding direction. So if it says your 1,200-pound horse needs six pounds a day, you need to feed six pounds a day in order to get all the vitamins and minerals. If doing that would make the horse fat and say you only need to feed four pounds, then you're going to have to put a little bit of that ration balancer in there that I talked about earlier to kind of fill out uh, the missing vitamins and minerals. And that's probably the biggest mistake I see people make is they feed mostly hay and they feed a scoop of something, scoop of a performance feed, scoop of a senior feed, which is normally about two to three pounds. And when you read the feeding directions on those bags, it's much larger quantities that you're supposed to be feeding, six, eight pounds a day. and people say, gosh, if I fed that, the horse would be fat, or he'd buck me off, or whatever. Well, that's not the right feed for your horse, then. Um, so it really, the key is, is to feed the condition. If you can do that just with hay, great. Find yourself a ration balancer. If you can't do that just with forage, that's when you go looking for a higher calorie source. Okay.
0: And Dr. Tunis, you mentioned the Henneke body score conditioning. Uh, we have on the a poster uh, that shows you how to body score your horse and examples of each of those body scores. And I went ahead and put that out to everyone in the chat box, uh, I have the link to it. So if you're listening and you're interested in learning about body scoring, go ahead and click on that. Um, there's a poster you can print out. Um, and Talk to your vet, and your vet can help explain where to look for those pockets of fat and, and where your horse should be on that. Um, we can have a follow-
2: plug your fabulous, Can I also plug your fabulous weight calculator?
0: Oh, yes, because please
2: do. In order to figure out how much your feed your horse needs from those commercial feeds, you need to know how much your horse weighs. And there's a fabulous weight calculator on thehorse.com, and there's also um, a great video. Um, with uh, faculty from the Glock Institute. And I think there's a video on body condition scoring also.
0: Okay. And thank you for mentioning that. And Erica, our news editor, who is the one who's receiving questions live right now, she actually has sent that to me and i'm going to have her go ahead and put that in the chat as well so that people can get to that body weight calculator um actually this is a follow-up dr tunis from patty in the live audience and she wants to know about treats sugary things like peppermints is there a limit she said that she knows someone who treats her horse with pop tarts um and orange jelly slices (laughs) dr jones did you (laughs) <laughs> I think I'm getting eagles from everyone. Okay, so Dr. Tooney's, um, how many peppermints is too many peppermints? My horses would say there's never too many, but uh, any nutritionist never might disagree. <laughs> yeah,
2: it really, it really comes down to you know the individual horse. Do they have any health issues? And and really, how many peppermints you're you know wanting to feed? Um, you know, I think for the average healthy horse, a couple of peppermints is not going to be an issue. If you have a horse that is in the middle of, you know, an acute founder episode that may be linked to metabolic issues, then I would stay away from the peppermints. Um, so it's, you know, there's a lot of you kind of have to use common sense. And you know, peppermints have a lot of sugar in them. A lot of people worry about carrots and apples. Um, Again, if you've got a horse that's in crisis or is sort of on the brink of crisis, you know, with laminitis and things, you know, it's, it's sensible to stay away from all these things. Um, but there's not a lot of sugar in, you know, a small carrot or a small apple, and um, so if you're an average healthy horse, that's fine. It's just be judicious and use common sense. You know, as for feeding things like pop tarts. I mean, we tend to think that most things we feed horses are safe for people, <clears throat> but do keep in mind they do have a different digestive tract than we do, and you know, so that may not always be a safe assumption. Um, and you know, some ingredients, if they if they end up getting into the hindgut microbial environment, could cause hind gut disruption. So I'd be a little cautious about feeding, you know, some things like that. I know, Erin, if you have any other thoughts on that.
1: No, I think you covered it quite well. The only other thought I would have is um, sometimes your pastures have higher sugars in them than you would even imagine. Right. And um, you'd be quite yes. surprised if you would have your pasture tested. And there are a few testing places, Dairy Forge uh, Testing Lab is one of them, that will test your uh, pasture and let you know when the sugars are the highest and there's horses that need to avoid those times.
2: Right, and I, and I see that quite a lot. You know, people are worrying about their peppermints and then feeding you know, untested hay or mm-hmm. their horse is out on pasture. And so they're worrying about you know two peppermints when the horse is eating 20 pounds of high sugar hay or is out on pasture. So I think that's a really valid point.
0: Um, We have a question from our live audience, uh, and Dr. Jones, I'm going to give it to you first, and then I'm thinking Dr. Toonies will have a follow-up to it as well. This is from Leslie, and she said she just purchased her first horse in 30 years. Congratulations, Leslie. Um, She said that the mare is being shipped to California from Utah, and she wants to know if there's anything she should do on her end to relieve the stress of travel. So what recommendations do you have, Dr. Jones, if you're having a
1: horse shipped? Well, first off, welcome back to the horse community. That's fantastic. Um, And a lot has changed in 30 years, that's for sure. So seek out advice if you have not yet done that. The um, transport, uh, the old-fashioned thing was we used to tube horses with uh, mineral oil prior to putting them on a long trailer ride. We don't do that much anymore. There still are some that do that. I always recommend that uh, they have plenty of offerings of water during their trips. And prior to getting onto the trailer, uh, there are a few, a few medical things you can do to decrease the stress. There are products out that uh, you can apply to the horse um, nose or put into the feed that's supposed to calm them. Um, and you can check with your veterinarian regarding that. Um, I would not suggest sedation for the horse. It does not last long enough. And some of the sedations that do last a long time have other untoward effects that you wouldn't want to see. Um, but proper stops for water is uh, pertinent. Um, and then when, once they arrive, my keynote that I tell anybody who's receiving a horse cross country like that or a, a significant distance is I recommend that they get their temperature taken every day, at least once a day, for five days. And anytime the horse reaches 102 or more, or maybe even 101.5, it's in the dead of winter or more. You may want to seek out your veterinarian because you may be heading into a respiratory issue that you would like to catch early. Okay. Um, and
0: Dr. Toonies?
2: Yeah, one of the things that I think that buying the horses, regardless of whether you're having them shipped, is see if the person selling the horse is willing to send you some hay with the horse, a bale of hay. That may not be possible to put on a professional rig. They may not have space for that. but. You know, being able to kind of transition that horse to their new forage may help ease the stress. Um, Gastric ulcers is something we worry about with horses shipping and stress and being a new environment. So maybe talk to your veterinarian about measures you can take to prevent gastric ulcers. um, And they may need to start before the horse ships. Um, There are products out there to entice a horse to drink. Um, things you can put in the water if you get tempted to put something in the water always make sure that you know you offer that horse water that's what I call untainted um, you know they may not want to drink the water at your barn it may taste different for example if you're in a boarding facility um, it, with a city water supply it might be chlorinated and smell a little strange comp- if they're coming from a ranch where they have well water um, so those are things to look for um, you know, if you're, if you're in a barn where you've got automatic waterers, it's really difficult to tell if they're drinking once they arrive because the things just fill up all the time and you can't tell if they've drunk anything. So be vigilant about that. Look for numbers of piles of manure in the, in the stall. You know, ask your stall cleaners if you don't muck your stalls yourself. You know, did they see manure? How many piles of manure did they see? You know, make sure you don't have some kind of, you know, impaction colic starting in those first couple of days. Um, and then there was something else that came to mind, and it's
0: gone. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully the, uh, her horse makes makes the trip well, and she gets to have a lot of fun with her new horse. Um, 30
1: years is a long in right, in right? My yeah. Last, yeah, My last comment is there's been wonderful shipping boots and pole protectors that have come out since mm-hmm. 30 years ago. And I'm a huge believer that if you go five miles or 500 miles or 5,000 miles, put shipping boots on. Oh.
0: And from my experience, if you hire a reputable shipper, they do this every day and, and they're really good at managing the horses and keeping them safe and monitoring them on the road. So, um, yeah, hopefully that, that will help arrest rest easy as well. Um, Dr. Jones, I have a question from Amy in Colorado and she wants to know how often do horses need their teeth floated and can a vet perform this service or is it a specialty?
1: Teeth floating, one of the things I love doing. Um, it gives you instant satisfaction as a veterinarian. You have bad teeth and then also need good teeth. Um, floating is done on average once a year. If you have just purchased a horse that they have not done the teeth in two years and you're not sure if it needs to be done, I'll tell you right now it needs to be done. Um, there's not too many horses that can go two years plus without having their teeth done. The <clears throat> uh, Practice Act in your state states in most states, states that a veterinarian is responsible for the medical management of your horse, including dental care. So I don't know every single Veterinary Practice Act for every single state, but majority of them do state a veterinarian is responsible for doing dental care. Um, my recommendation, use a, use a licensed official or licensed person. I.E. somebody who is registered with the Board of Professional Regulations. You wouldn't want to use a plumber that doesn't have a license through the Board of Professional Regulations working on plumbing in your house because if they do something and spot a leak and flood your house, you're going to be in some deep (laughs) doo-doo. And uh, same thing with if something happens to the teeth of the horse and you have no recourse, to go after the person because they have no license or they're not a part of the Professional Board of Regulation where you can file a complaint, you kind of are just stuck holding you know, the end of the lead rope with their broken jaw, fractured tooth, or something to affect. So a licensed uh, person for the Board of Professional Regulation would be recommended, and it's 99.9% of the time it's your veterinarian.
0: Um, we have a question. Dr. Toonies, from our live audience. Cheryl says this might sound silly, but she wants to know if there's any focus on organic or non-GMO feeds for our horses. So Dr. Toonies, this is big in the news and in conversation for, for human health, a lot of political debate going on with the issue as well. I, do we know anything yet with horses as far as GMOs and organic feeds?
2: Yeah. Um, not as far as specific, you know, research being done to see the difference, you know, potential impacts on them, no. Um, but as is often the case, whatever is going on in the human nutrition realm tends to end up transferring into the equine realm. I mean, 15 years ago, the Atkins diet was a big deal in human nutrition, and lots of people wanted to put their horses on on no-carb diets, <laughs> um, and now we have you know big farm-to-fork movement, and there's a, a, more of a movement to feeding sort of whole foods to horses, and with that, organic and GMO-free. Um, and there are some companies that are sort of getting behind that. So um, you know, one of the big national manufacturers just recently announced that they had done a, a GMO-free feed on a regional level in the Northeast, and they've now announced it's going to be available national, you know, nationwide. That's the only big kind of national chain I know that's that's doing that. There are also smaller regional manufacturers that are producing GMO and organic feeds. Um, You have to be a little bit careful because what I'm noticing is is that a lot of these feeds are relying more heavily on traditional grains. So they tend to have, you know, an oat base. um, And they tend, some of them are not fortified with vitamins and minerals. Um, and so you're left needing to find some source of vitamins and minerals from somewhere in order to make sure that a horse's diet is balanced. And, you know, higher starch feeds are not appropriate for all horses. So um, there's not a lot of variety out there right now, and they're nearly all grain-based, um, and that may not be appropriate in, in all situations. So, um, you know, in your attempts to avoid GMOs and be organic with your horse, You know, if you have a horse with a metabolic issue that needs a lower starch, you know, feeds in his diet, you might actually create more damage with that horse than you would if you fed the, you know, the feed that is not GMO-free, if that makes sense.
0: And I did for our audience just post an article into the chat that we ran uh, in the horse and on the horse.com about GMOs and, and what we know and what we don't know about GMOs and horses. So uh, I encourage anyone with questions to go take a look at that. I know that was really interesting to me when it came up because it is like you said, uh, Dr. Tooney is just part of the conversation um, in human Nutrition as well. So, um, our next question is for Dr. Toonies and it's from Norma in Los Angeles. And Norma wants to know if it's okay to put a hay net on the ground rather than hanging it so that the horse can move its jaw in a more natural way while eating. Um, or are we concerned that the horse might step in the hay net and get a hoof or shoe stuck in it? Which, what are your recommendations to your clients? Um,
2: well, it depends if the horse is barefoot or not a little bit, you know, less of a concern if the horse is barefoot, there's, there's not a shoe clip or, you know, whatever that could get caught in the hay net. And obviously, we're talking about small hole hay nets here, the ones with sort of inch size holes. We're not talking this sort of traditional things with, you know, five inch holes um, where a whole hoof could go through the hole. Um, I have my concerns about them being loose on the ground, you know, going back to the sand issue. They can just drag them around and take them wherever. And um, many times, horses that are being fed in hay nets are on you know, re- reduced forage rations and in dirt lots and so being able to pull that hay net all over, eating it off the dirt is not a good idea. Um, horses that are shod, while they can't get their foot you know, into the holes because the holes are too small, they could potentially get the heel of their shoe um, caught in a hole and then have a hay net attached to their foot which is you know, likely to freak out most horses. So I'm, I'm a, you know, and I, and I also believe that horses need to eat, you know, with their head at ground level, that's how they're designed to eat, it's important for their respiratory health. So my preference would be to find some kind of bin or box or trough that you can secure that hay net in that has, um, you know, a vertical side to it that goes up, you know, at least maybe 18 inches where for that horse to put its hoof anywhere near that hay net, they'd actually have to step over that vertical lip that's, that's fairly high. Um, that
0: would be my preference. Okay. Um, Dr. Jones, we have a question from Nancy in North Carolina, and she said that she's going to be shoeing her Tennessee Walker for the first time. How long does it take for a horse to adjust to its new shoes?
1: Well, it depends on the condition of the hoof for at the moment. Um, new shoes on a horse, they should not have any problems with right away, they should be fine. But if you have just recently purchased a horse that may have been um, neglected due to finances, family tragedy, whatever the reason, um, the foot may need some trimming to get it back into shape prior to putting the shoe on. And sometimes those adjustments um, may take a little bit of time. I wouldn't say that they're going to be lame when they have the shoe on, but they may have to move differently and use different ways of muffling. Um, Muscles to move in order to, um, I guess, feel right. But the horse should never be lame right off the bat after a shoeing, whether it's barefoot or, or shoeing, and it shouldn't be major adjustments done when the farrier is out there. So if they're splayed with big cracks, you shouldn't see this perfect shaped foot that you would see on a show horse immediately after that, because it does take time to inch the foot back to a proper shape. Um, like I tell everybody, there is no quick Fix when it comes to a horse's hoof, it's dynamic, so it's moving all the time, but it's also a living tissue. Even though it's dead on the outside, it's living underneath there, so you have to start adjusting the living tissue to go back to its normal conformation. And again, last but not least, communicate to your farrier. There's a lot of times that people don't communicate to the farrier that they either quick them by cutting them a little too short and the horse is lame for a couple days after they've been there. They drive away from your farm. They have no idea what's going on there unless somebody tells them. So, please have communication with your your farrier. You can ask the farrier, "Look, I've got this horse that really is a bad shape on its feet. I know. I, I I've never seen feet like this before in my life. How long do you think it will take to get it back to a more balanced foot?" And they'll tell you, you know, it'll take you six months, maybe a year to you a, a three three shoeing sessions. Depends on how bad they are. <laughs> Dr.
0: Jones, how often does a horse need foot care?
1: On average, they go between five and seven weeks, some as quick as four. Very rarely do you go out to the seven weeks, but five is usually the average. Um, Four is on some of these horses that need probably more therapeutic care, um, where they have to kind of stay on top of the dynamics of the foot.
0: Dr. Jones, we have a question from Erica in Australia, and she wants to know if rotational deworming is a thing of the past.
1: Yes, it is, Erica. We have uh, been um, chastised, even by the pharmaceutical companies, that we are over deworming now, and the worms are becoming resistant to our dewormers, and there are no more dewormers out there to be had. So, yes, rotational warming is becoming a thing of the past. We are highly recommending, like you do in your dogs and cats, primarily dogs though, that you do um, fecal samples. And depending on what environment you're in, you may do fecal samples more often than other places. Uh, those who get nice cold snow, frost, uh, months, don't have the problem of worms and eggs living in that kind of environment. So they don't need to probably do a fecal count during the snowy time of the year, but during the warm or the moist times of year, you may have to check that a little more often. Okay. And uh,
0: Dr. Toonies, we are just about out of time, but I have one last question that I'd like to ask you. Um, We have Allison in Washington, and she wants to know how often should a horse be fed per day?
2: Yeah, that's gonna kind of, you know, I, it's gonna kind of depend on, you know, your setup and, and how you kind of facility that your horse is in. But I mean remembering that they're designed to eat many, many hours a day, you know, sixteen plus hours a day in a natural setting, where they're out on the range, walking and eating and walking and eating. So the meal feeding that we tend to implement in most of our facilities is really quite alien to their digestive anatomy and physiology. Um So the more we can, the more meals we can feed them, the better. Um, And so many small meals throughout the day uh, would be far better than, you know, one large meal. You know, many facilities feed twice a day. Um, Three times a day would be even better if you can give lunch um, as well as, you know, breakfast and dinner. Um, You're really sort of honoring their anatomy and physiology. You get better digestibility, better absorption of the things that you're feeding. You know, if you're not overwhelming the digestive tract with, you know, Infrequent, very large meals. So, as many as you can possibly manage within the management system that you kind of find yourself.
1: And my ad- addition to that, as I agree wholeheartedly with what she said, as more often as you can would be great. They always talk about feeding at the exact same time every day, so that you do not cause colic in your horse. And the reason for that is if the horse is standing in a stall with, a, with nothing else to eat and they're anticipating that food to come at that hour, they will have some digestive issues that will be prompt. But if they have something in front of them on a fairly regular basis, they may stand quiet maybe for an hour or two during the day without something in front of them, but on a fairly regular basis, they have something to munch on, they'll be less anxious and less, and less digestive issues.
2: Okay. And I think that that goes back to those, you know, I, I have to say I'm a big believer in those, you know, the slow feeders, the small hold hay nets. I mean, I um, was at a camp once where some some people, I um, actually used to sell small hold hay nets, I don't anymore, um, and I sold four. And, you know, you're supposed to not immediately use them the way these people did, but they, of course, put their whole evening feed in the hay net. And it was very interesting because 20 horses at this camp They were all fed at 6 o'clock. When I went back out at 10 o'clock, the only horses that had any hay left in front of them were the ones in the hay nets. And when I went back out at 6 o'clock before anybody fed again, they still had a soccer ball amount of hay in that hay net that they had chosen not to eat for whatever reason. So they had actually had something there all night. Um, And, you know, that's something to think about. They they didn't feed any more hay than normal. They just made it last longer.
0: So um, we're actually out of time tonight, uh, but I did just put in the chat uh, box a editor's picks of resources for new horse owners that we put together. Uh, it's an article that has 10 different resources in there on all different things about horse care. There's so much to cover, but hopefully that uh, information will help everyone out. I want to thank everyone for joining us tonight. And before we go, I want to remind you that we have our offer of a free two-month trial of the Horse Your Guide to Equine Healthcare Magazine. Just go to thehorse.com, click on the, um, the banner ad or on the Ask the Horse um, live page and you can sign up for that special offer. I want to thank our experts, Dr. Aaron Denny-Jones and Dr. Clara Toonies. It was really wonderful to have you guys here tonight uh, to, to ask, answer all these questions. Thank you, Dr. Jones and thank you, Dr. Toonies.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. It was so much fun. Wasn't that? Gone on for a couple more hours. I know.
0: I know it, right? <laughs> it really is fun talking to the, the new horse owners. Um, I want to thank everyone who's listening for sending in your questions during registration and during the live event. We couldn't do these events without your questions. We hope that you will join us in the future. We do Ask the Horse Lives every month on different topics. So If you're a new horse owner or this is the first Ask the Horse Live you've been to, please join us next month um, for our next topic. Until next time, I'm Michelle Anderson for the thehorseandthehorse.com from all of us here. Have a great night.